It's all about efficiency. I, I like to say optimization, not efficiency, because efficiency doesn't always produce the best uh, income. It's really optimization. And it's, it's trying to take a process that you've always done and just do it faster and better and on a larger scale and uh, get feed out the door and deliver to the site. A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutrition program innovation. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the Animal Nutrition Team at Eastman.com. Welcome to the Feed Podcast. Uh, our guest today is Bob Otker with the Mashops. I'm Ron Hollenbeck. Uh, so, Bob, would you, uh, how are you today, first of all? And if you would give a, uh, you know, a, a brief uh, you know, synopsis of you, what you do, how long you've done it, and anything uh, you, you think we might like to know. Okay, well, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Bob Odker. I am the uh, nutritional operations manager for the Mashoffs. Uh, that's current title. Uh, I've been in the feed business since 1982 when I started with a small mill here in the uh, Pike County area and worked there along around 18 years uh, and then went to uh, a smaller co-op for a while and then came on board with the Mashoffs in 2002. And I've worked in the feed part of their organization since that time, uh, primarily feed mill management, feed mill projects, uh, and uh, dealing with toll mills, which are the mills that manufacture feed that we buy, f that we don't produce ourselves. So um, kind of had various roles all through that time, but that's a, brief review of what I've done. We had the, well, privilege, I guess, of working uh, together on things uh, for for several years. So um, I know you have a, a bit of a unique uh, position within the mash-offs and how you you interact with, with other feed producers. Uh, you want to kind of explain explain that to us and, and how that I guess the intricacies of of what uh, what you attempt to do each day. Well, yeah. So, so first of all, the the mash offs are are very much based on uh, science. They they have uh, a good number of uh, nutritionists 
and research people to work for them. And what we do is our own trials and, and we try to uh, decide exactly what we want to feed our pigs. Uh, that's easier to do in a mill that you own. But since we're spread across such a big geographical area, I've spent a good deal of my time traveling around looking for uh, feed partners that will help us manufacture the feed that we want to use. Uh, pelleted feed, micron size, uh, safe safety concerns, both safe feed and, and a reliable uh, supply of feed. So I've spent a lot of time, uh, I, I would, I don't know how many females I've been in, Ron. Uh, at one time, I was working with 23 tow mill partners. So that would be 23 mills that were producing feed for us. And we put together an auditing program and a, and a program where I would manage, uh, I would make a visit to each mill. And we talk about things like pelleting and grinding and, and uh, ingredient sourcing. And we try to understand the ingredients that we're using in each different geographic area and to formulate to those things. So there's a lot of uh, partnering, a lot of relationship building. I had the pleasure of buying feed uh, from the group you work for. We first met as in that toll mill relationship. Uh, and then later on, you joined us for a while and, and got to work with you there as well. So uh, there's a lot of difference between just calling up a feed mill and wanting to buy some uh, grower feed, for example, uh, than there is to go to sit down with a guy and say, hey, this is this is what we'd really like to have and see what the capabilities of his mill are first. Um, if I have a, an ask and the guy's equipment won't really meet that or isn't capable of that, then I have to go back to our people and say, well, you know, this mill can't do this, but here's what they can do. And then we talk about the cost of those kind of things. And so it, it's just a really challenging a way of buying feed is compared to just calling a feed mill and saying, Hey, send me out something here for a, a 50 pound pig. So that's, that's taken up a good deal of my time uh, as well as in trying to learn the markets in that area for uh, incoming ingredients, what's available, a fair way to price everything. Um, we've always understood that if we're going to have a toll mill partner, they've got to make money too. You can't just try to get everything it's just as cheaply as you can. Everybody's got to make some money. What we like to do is understand where that money's being made and then what kind of things we can help with to, to help lower the cost, you know, for both of us. So I guess that's unique in the business. Well, and how do you, uh, you said earlier that uh, the mash offs are, are based on science and like to make science, uh, well, science-based decisions. Um, how do you balance that with with your internal nutritionists, uh, veterinarians, and leadership team? How do you how do you balance what what they want and and try to uh, you know you know build and establish a relationship with a toll mill partner that 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 may be foreign to them that it's it's just yeah. not they've done before. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I always, I like to tell people what, what I do is I, I kind of live in that ground, uh, that area between the scientists and between the people that are actually manufacturing feed uh, every day. And, and a, a lot of what that entails is I understand what the, what the scientist tells us out of the research barn, which is 
you know, it could be anything. We, you know, we'll pick a, we'll pick a topic. Let's talk about grind size, for example. Uh, you know, in the trial, here's what we learned, Bob. You know, in our trial, we learned this and this and this. And if we have that, then we'll equal this and everything is good. We make the optimum amount of money. So someone has to try to work with the nutritionists and the scientists to make them understand that what we can do in a trial barn is not what we're going to see out in the production commercial field because, you know, the, the trial people should be very, very big on uh, detail. They should understand exactly what they're doing. That's their top priority. They've got all this focus. So, so I go out to the feed mill then and I look at the feed mill and try to get a grasp on what kind of equipment they have and what their other customers are asking for simultaneously. Um, some of these mills, as you know, may be feeding for 30, 40, 50, 60 different people and they can't have a different grind size for everybody. Um, so I can go look at what they're currently doing, maybe what they're capable of doing, ask them for this. And then based on that, then we started a negotiation on cost and those kind of things. So then I go back to the my side and I'm like, okay, now, so what's the value of this? Um, so I know what we can do. It's it's one thing to know that something will make you money. And then it's the other way. It's another thing to figure out if you can get it and if you can get it and execute it, um, what that final payoff is. And to, to be able to measure your success, did we, act, okay, were we actually able to execute this and measure it and know that, yes, we were able to increase profits or health or whatever the target might be. And there's a lot of negotiation in those uh, kinds of things. There's a lot of pers different personalities. Uh, there's a lot of different um, people have different reasons for being in the room when you're wanting to do that. And it's you just kind of got to learn what everybody needs to make this thing work and put it together and in a way to measure it uh, so that you can make sure that, you know, six months, a year down the road, you are getting that data. So we, we develop a system of sending data back to us so we can monitor uh, QC testing or whatever it is we're monitoring and, and keep a hand on that and then have uh, conversations when things aren't quite what we all agreed on to begin with. So that's kind of the, the, the space I live in. And oftentimes I have to go back and say, we can't do this, but we can do this. And, you know, does, is that enough value to go up forward with the project? It really the very same things we do at our own mills when we're talking about investing capital, right? If, if we want to do this, how much does it cost to do it? Can we do it regularly? And then what's the payoff for investing in that? So those are the, and I, I really love doing that kind of stuff. So I've been very fortunate to, to work with a company that, that, that really focus was a focus. Well, and with the Mashoffs having their own feed mills, uh, in addition to, you know, like this at one time over 20, uh, toll mills, uh, that, that you've worked with, uh, how is it different implementing change? at a toll mill versus your own mill. Uh, I mean, and, and I don't mean that to be a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I know it's different. And uh, so, yeah, just how, how do you approach that and how is it different? 
Well, you know, first of all, obviously you've got a little more autonomy, you know, at your own own feed mill or you should have. And so it's, it's a little easier to, to implement change quickly. Uh, changes you want to make don't really affect anybody else. So we don't have to worry about, we don't have to worry about our customer getting mad and leaving because our customer is ourselves. You know, we're sending feed to uh, finishers that are leased, but, but they don't have an option to just go buy feed from somebody else. <laughs> so it, so from that aspect, we've got a lot more flexibility where I might go to another guy down the road uh, and, and he may be a multi-species mill, right? He may be feeding cattle and sheep and chickens and, um, and my swine and my swine may represent a very small or maybe a large portion of his business. So depending on that, how willing he is to make changes for me and that, that type of thing. Um, if we prefer a certain supplier and an ingredient and that ingredient is more expensive than some other options, you know, how can I work with him to get him to use that ingredient, my preferred ingredient over what he's always used. So there's just all kinds of things that, that pop up, um, medications, you know, sometimes medications that other species use don't really work for us or vice versa. And so then we may have to look at using some different uh, medication in a, in a feed mill. So there's, there's just a, a plethora of things that we need to look at. And then the amount of success you have on that based on the volume. Cause when you have 23 toll mills, you'll have mills that make a good deal of feed for you. Uh, we use somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million ton of feed a year. And, and we make about half of that and we buy the other half. And so if I go into a mill where I've got, 20 loads a day, I get a little more attention than if I've got a mill that makes two or three loads a day for me. Um, so we just have to work all those things out and try to find something that works for everybody. Uh, and then, you know, and then you throw some transport in there on top of that for some, some more uh, complication of actually getting it somewhere. So, so you're trying to find a feed mill, you know, within a reasonable number of miles from your site um, hence the reason we end up with so many toll mills. Um, so, and those are the kind of things we look at. And you, you mentioned particle size as an example before. Um, and I know for the most part, the mash-offs would prefer pellets versus a meal feed. Um, is there... Do the mash offs prefer a hammer mill versus a roller mill, or do you do you have a preference? Uh, I, you know, I think the answer to that question is we don't have a preference, um, but we do we do believe pretty firmly that it takes hammer mill to get to the the micron size that we want. Um, we lean towards hammer mills. For that fact, which is can be another problem, because as you well know, it's more expensive to hammer mill corn than it is to roller mill corn. And we've we've gone through the whole chain of events, you know, since in 1982, we ground everything with a hammer mill. You know, that's that's how we did it. And then we we decided we could do the 650 or 700 micron corn on a roller mill with half the electricity consumption. So the whole industry switched to roller mills. 
and the flowability was good with the 650 micron or so corn. Uh, it was relatively, it was, it was not as expensive from a maintenance standpoint either. And then boy, everybody was, we put roller mills everywhere and everything went fine. And then we started doing research on smaller micron. And, and that's the other thing. The, the interesting part about agriculture is there's very few things that, that everybody agrees upon, right? You can, you can talk to some groups that they're happy with 650 micron in swine and, and they might think that smaller micron size has, uh, you know, ulcers or other issues that come along with it or flowability issues. And they just choose not to, to want to go there. So, so then once again, when you're out in the open market, you've got people that I go into and I may say, Hey, I'm looking for 300 micron corn. And that scares half of their customer base right off the bat. And so that's, that's probably the biggest thing to get done in a commercial setting is to get micron size down where we want it and then put in a big enough hammer mill to do the volume they need to keep the mixer running. It's, it's usually a pretty good capital expense if they don't already have it. So um, micron size is, it's hard to find a mill that can satisfy everybody with micron size. So that's probably one of our biggest focus is that impelling, as you mentioned. So, And I can speak with personal experience on that. Uh, different customers, one customer wants 650, as you said, somebody else wants 400 or less, and you you can't satisfy everybody. And to some extent, I mean, right, wrong, or indifferent, you try to pick something halfway in the middle that you can grind enough corn to to meet your capacity needs. But, um, I mean, pretty much nobody ends up being happy in that scenario, but it's it, it's it's the best it's the best you can do uh, as a toll mill working with with multiple customers, and that's um, I, I've been on both sides of that table. I've been in your position as well as the toll mill side, and it's frustrating for both parties. It it is, and it takes a pretty good it does take a pretty good partnership and people who are really wanting to be in that customer service thing to really cover a bunch of those needs. And that requires capital. And then that raises cost. And then, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you as the guy asking for all this stuff, I don't want to have to pay for all of it to the full extent or then, then there's no uh, reason for me to want to do it. Right. And so that's, that's the biggest drawback in a lot of places is the dollars and cents involved in, in getting it. Um, Capital's always been a, a an issue and I think always will be. And a lot of these big mills that they're building now, you know, they're basically designed to make one or two things, right? And that's what they're going to make. And then they want to run a lot of tons and that's, that's what you have to do to, to pay for one. So, yeah, it's a challenge to try to be uh, outside of the norm, whether you want big micron size or, or large micron size. It's hard to find a place to grind corn for cattle anymore, too. You know, that that's not done very many places anymore. So it's it's affects all. It affects all agriculture, the, the feed milling thing. Absolutely. Uh, and then when you get in areas that are 
you, you get the idea of going somewhere and raise pigs where there's not a lot of pigs for biosecurity. And then there's also nobody to make feed for you. <laughs> so that's, that's very challenging when you get out in uh, some of the Western parts of the country. Yep. And I mean, you, you had mentioned, uh, you know, some of the big mills today. I mean, you've, you've been in this industry a long time. You've seen a lot of, a lot of changes over the years. Um, how how has that experience from uh, you know more smaller mills to these uh, what some people call mega mills uh, today? Um, how has that um, you know impacted your roles through the years? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what it's taught me a, a ton of things. You know it. it uh, the mill I started working in was probably a twenty-five or thirty thousand ton a year feed mill, and and that was a pretty big concern. And in that day, we made a lot of specialty products. Uh, we had, I would guess, we had twenty or twenty-five employees in that mill. We did all the delivery was company trucks, that type of thing. Uh, a lot of special formulas. Uh, we screened all the pellets, so we had a very low percentage of fines and in all the feed. Um, the guy that came on Saturday morning to buy bags, you know, for his 20 or 30 gills or sows that he had behind the house was just as important as anybody else that, that came in and out. And, you know, and gradually, gradually all those things have, have changed um, slowly. Um, the, the big mills, I mean, I don't know what a guy wants to consider a big mill, but, you know, I don't see anything built anymore that can't make, Three or four hundred thousand ton a year seems to be kind of a entry level mill today. Uh, the smaller ones are disappearing every day. We've had a couple of times where we've had some serious issues internally in one of our mills, and you go out and look for backup places to buy feed, uh, and they just don't exist anymore. Uh, we've we've gone to to process pellet is what I call it. I think that's what most people call it. You know, we don't. We don't concern ourselves with fines and those kind of things like we used to in pellets. It's if it's below an acceptable area, uh, we load it on a truck. It's all primarily bulk. Um, we used to bag probably seventy percent of what we made over at the old mill was bag feed when I started. Uh, bulk trucks were really small. You remember the little single axle bulk trucks with the three bins in them? You know, nine ton, nine ton, and and we delivered a lot of that directly to the the feeders out in the lot. We'd open the gate and drive out in a lot and fill, go out and fill feeders, you know. And and now it's it's all primarily semis. Uh, all, all of our sites or most of our sites, everything we build has has twenty six ton tanks. So you can uh, take one load, take one semi load, and put it in one tank and and come back. It, the volume, just the sheer volume of the of the things we do and the equipment we run, you know. Uh, pellet mills that run 40 ton an hour are not even considered to be really big pellet mills anymore. Uh, the help, the automation, uh, you know, 300,000 ton mill now might have 12 or 14 employees making, you know, 10 times what we made over there. Um, the, the processing is, I, I like, I mean, I like to say that the, the processing really hasn't changed much. I mean, a hammer mill still, still does what a hammer mill did. And, 82 it's just a larger scale and pelleting has changed only in that 
when I learned how to pellet, we were pelleting uh, starters and those kind of things for flowability and and for a lack of fines. Um, we were pelleting so we could use some alternative ingredients. We didn't give a lot of thought to anything but what the pellet looked like when it came out of the bin. You know, now the the scientists have understood more about pelleting and the effects of the heat and that kind of thing. And, and we're really pelleting now. Uh, for all different, a whole different set of reasons than we were pelting in 82 and 83. And, you know, we don't add all the old, the, we used to spray on some strawberry scent and that kind of stuff to make the stuff smell better, which was all for the producer, not for the pig. Um, that's all gone. Uh, it's just, it's all about efficiency. I, I like to say optimization, not efficiency, because efficiency doesn't always, produce the best uh, income. It's really optimization. And it's, it's trying to take a process that you've always done and just do it faster and better and on a larger scale and uh, get feed out the door and deliver to the site. Well, yeah, I can uh, tell you from a, well, as you've experienced, pellet quality uh, can be variable. From plant to plant. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and I would agree. Um, well, certainly coming from, from bag feed, uh, the the quality, the 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 lack of fines anyway in in the feed has uh, I, I guess more fines have, have become acceptable. Uh, as time has gone on and, uh, you know, going to bulk feeds and those larger pellet mills and um, how I, I assume that's probably a, uh, a, a constant uh, discussion you probably have with toll mills. How, um, you know, how, how has that interaction uh, gone between you and the toll mills and, and, uh, getting the, uh, the the feed quality, the pellet quality you're looking for. Yeah, and that's that's one of the that's probably one of the more challenging things, even than than micron size, because in, in my feed mill and our feed mills, you know, I can just I can order the die spec I need to fit my formulations that allows me to run the temperatures I want to allow, and 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 so we can sit there and do that twenty four hours a day five, six, seven days a week. And so, so you go to these other mills knowing that what you're asking for is, is not undoable, right? It's, it's not impossible. Uh, you're doing it at home every day. And, but then you get into the situation where there's still people in the industry that do use pellets that want the lower fines and demand the lower fines. Um, and so, so the guy is trying to set his pellet mill up to pellet, uh, Ron's feed at a, at a certain percentage of fines. And so he needs a different die spec. And Bob comes along and says, Oh, I can, I can tolerate twice that many fines. Uh, and, but I, and I want this temperature, but he can't buy a die, uh, that, that will do both. And going back to the old days, when you and I started, you just had five or six dies for the mill and they weren't all that big. So you, you know, it was a, 
30, 45 minute job to change dyes. You might have three different dyes on one of those small pellet mills in a day and think nothing of it. Well, now you go into these, these mills, the dye weighs 2000 pounds or more. And it, it takes six hours. If you know what you're doing to get them on there and get them set and get them going. And nobody's willing to do that. So they want to put a dye on there and run it. Don't take it off till it has to come off. And so the, so the dye spec thing is a big, uh, stumbling block for me because I am less concerned about fines and than the next guy down the road. And then if you happen to throw in a, a multi-species thing where a guy's trying to run a little bit of maybe a cattle starter or something like that, then you've got another layer of, uh, of issues there. So uh, it's really tough to go out and match what you're doing at home you just have to go out there knowing you're probably not going to do that. Now there's a couple of big mills around that really are doing pretty much the same thing we're doing and, and you can do it there, but I would say that's a very small percentage. And so then you have to adjust your way of thinking. And that, this gets back to that. I, I mentioned earlier about the trying to understand the capability of the feed mill. So I'm the kind of guy that if I come to you, Ron, I want you to make feed and I tour your mill and I can see that you cannot hit the production standards that the nutritional and the science guys are asking for, then that's where I have to go back to them and say, you know, Ron can't do this. So, so don't send him these production standards and measure him against those for the next five years, because he's never going to hit them. <laughs> it's not, it's not possible. So that's part of my job is to to then go back and and talk to Ron and say, well, what can you do, Ron? And then we run a few feeds and we see, and then we go back and tell those guys and we we set a standard for that mill based on what they're capable of doing and then just ask them to continue to do that. And I think that's a bit unusual approach to feed. Most people uh, seem to just want what they want or else they're going to be upset about it. And, uh, uh, interestingly enough, I also get a lot of pellet pushback from uh, from farmers, from the guys that are feeding this stuff. You know, everybody has their own opinion of what a good pellet looks like. And uh, it's, it's interesting that they'll call me upset uh, about the percentage of fines in some feed. And so we'll have them send in a sample and we'll do a sieve test on it. And, you know, it's right in what we're asking the mill to do. And so then to add another Part to it, I got the scientists wanting this, the mill wanting to do this, and then the guy that's feeding it thinking they're both wrong, and and so you have to kind of work with the uh, the production partner to help. You know, Omar says educate him. Uh, sometimes it's just try to convince them to go along with the the plan, <laughs> you know. And so uh, there's a there's very few farmers or people in ag. It, people in ag, most of us have opinions about stuff, you know, and 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 most of us got those opinions from our own personal experiences, and uh, we believe in most of them. And it's it really makes it interesting when you try to get two or three of those together and agree upon something. So, yeah, it's hard to convince people they're wrong, but <laughs> even if you strongly believe they are, but <laughs> it is it is hard to believe that, and uh, and even harder is to contemplate the fact that that we might be wrong occasionally, right? And so. Uh, but but that's what I that's what I like to do. I I like to work on things that that you know present some challenges and some some things we have to think differently uh, to work out for everybody. 
Another thing that's changed in in, in pelleting uh, over the years is the use of screeners, pellet screeners. I mean, they used to, um, most mills that pelleted would have screeners and they'd screen it to make sure there's as few of fines as possible. And I mean, personally, I hate screeners, but um, I, do you have, uh, have you had customers that uh, tell you, well, I can make a better pellet because I have a screener. And is that, uh, uh, I guess, are you currently feeding any, any feed that is going through a screener? And does that, uh, you know, show any value, I guess, to the nutritionists and, uh, and the, the, the scientists? Yeah, well, the, the the quick answer to the question is we we don't have anybody that I'm aware of screening pellets anymore for us. Uh, and the primary reason is, as you know, that slows the process down because you're returning the, the screened product back to the mill to be repelleted. And then so they're they say they're running 40 ton an hour, but, you know, 20 percent of it's coming back to the mill to be repelleted. So they're not. And that drives up the cost. Uh, basically what I, one of the things I do that have that works really well for me is, is the, the art, the research and development nutrition team, they will tell me, you know, we don't want to be above this number. So, so from this number on down is fine. And so most of my issues with fines and feed come from the toll miller who, who wants to be way below my mark because somebody else wants him to be right. Re- requests it. And then again, the, the farmer or the site manager who, who believes that we're getting cheated because we're paying for pellets and we're getting, uh, you know, say 20% fines in the feed and they want the load reclaim. And in all fairness, you know, pellets are harder to manage, especially in cold weather. Uh, Fines create some issues properly cooling pellets, and you send hot pellets out to the farm on on a bright Iowa brisk twenty below morning, and uh, you can have some problem getting those back out of the bin, right? So, it, so it's more man, it takes more management to feed pellets. I would absolutely agree with that. So, for all those reasons, you've got people um, kind of pushing back on. The fact that we do feel like we can feed a, a higher percentage of fines, we we always like to say we we work mostly off what the pig tells us, uh, as opposed to what everybody else tells us, and that's been one really good thing about our system is we all try to focus on what the pig's saying and work that around with everybody else that's involved in the in the program. <laughs> Have you, I mean, sticking, I guess, with the pelleting process, um, there's some mills, they have no post-pellet liquid application capabilities. Others will do fat at the dye. Others may have a downstream coder. Um, with with regards to, I guess, uh, uh, feed quality from a nutrient standpoint, pellet quality, um, and, and and I guess uh, uh, flowability concerns at the farm level. Uh, have you seen uh, it is one system better than the other? 
whether it's a downstream coder, fatta to die, or I mean, with the diets today, energy levels are are lower than they were several years ago. We'll put it that way. Um, so, I mean, several years ago, I mean, you, you about had to have some sort of a post pellet application system because you couldn't physically put that much in the mixer and and get anything to stick together in a pellet mill. Um, so, I mean, uh, toll mills are going to have different systems versus your own mills. Just curious from your personal uh, opinion, which which do you do you prefer, whether it's from a, a pellet quality perspective or a just overall feed quality perspective? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question and the fact that that too is is variable i i personally would i would consider anything over 20 pounds per ton to be a maximum that you can put in a mixer and then still make a decent pellet out of it so that's that would that's the way i would tell it you know to my research guy or to whoever you and i remember when we used to put a we've put a hundred pounds of fat on oh yeah on feed before when you know, you and I bought a lot of 25 cent fat, right? Which is not a lot more than that. Yeah. Yeah. So I would tell you in my, in my opinion, if you're going to do it right, if you're going to have more than 20 pounds per ton, then you know, you need to go directly to a downstream application, uh, you know, between the mixer leg or the pellet leg and the destination bin Um, more than, more than 20, in the mixer and you're going to start seeing just poor pellets coming out of the pellet mill. And if you try to put that much on at the die, uh, it, it messes, it messes the cooler up. It makes everything dirty and nasty. Uh, a nice uh, fat coater application to the cooled pellet is by far my preferred way. And preferably with a mixer, just a mixing auger, not an actual mixer, but a mixing auger between the coder and the destination bin, just to give it a minute to soak in. Uh, in particular, if you're going to do high volumes. And if you start talking about putting say 50 or 60 pounds per, per ton of fat on a pellet mill, that's running 40 ton an hour pellets, that's a lot of liquid that you're pumping up there and you, you better have the right equipment or especially in the winter. Um, it's it's going to be a mess. So I'm a big fan of pellet co- of fat coaters. Do you have any – this is coming from personal experience in a feed mill. In the dead of winter, with a downstream fat coater, had the blending screws to, to you know, mix it, get it to soak in. Um, do you have any – of your your toll mills or your company mills that have an issue when it's twenty below zero outside, even with even with the correct equipment, but putting you know seventy, eighty, hundred pounds a ton of fat on, it can't soak in and basically sets up on the outside of the pellet. So when it gets to that bin on the farm, it won't flow. Have you experienced that? And how do you? try to overcome those issues yeah in, indeed we have um and i think all of that the root cause of all of that just as you described it happens all the time and 
And to me, the root cause is we don't properly cool that pellet coming out of the cooler. So, so if you think about the, the fat application with it's going to take place, that pellet's got to be the right temperature and it's got to be, uh, able and willing to absorb that fat that you spray on it. And if, and if, if you're in a very cold climate, like, you know, I'm not picking on Iowa, but let's face it, if you're in, Northwest Iowa in, in the wintertime, uh, you're going to have some really cold temperatures. And I think we have a tendency to, to more or less freeze dry that pellet. So the outside of the pellet is very cold. The inside of the pellet is still warm. And so we take this pellet that's now, if it's within 10 degrees of ambient and it's zero outside, we've got this pellet that's 10 degrees. And now we're going to spray this 160 degree fat on it thinking it'll, it'll soak in and it doesn't, it heats that, it hits that cold outside shell of that pellet and then just solidifies. And then we put it in a bin somewhere and that heat seeps out of that pellet that we trapped inside when we didn't cool it properly. And then it melts the fat and now you got moisture and then that eventually dissipates. And again, it's still 20 below zero outside. So just now you have a 24 ton ice cube of feed in the bin. And I've, I have seen that more times than I even want to remember. And I'm sure uh, you have too. And I think in some areas it, it may not be wise to pellet in the wintertime or not put that much fat on it anyway. Um, and then that's now that's back. Now I'm back talking to the nutritionist, right? And the, and those guys saying, Hey guys, I know this makes money, but you know, we can't do it. Everybody's going to quit working with us if we keep trying to do this in the wintertime. And, and last but not least, the, the site guy, he's the guy that's left out there laying on the ground, trying to rod that stuff out of the bin and get it in to the pig. And even, even the best animal husbandry people in the world have a limit, a tolerance for that. Right. I mean, um, it's, it's just very difficult. And now we're getting back to that thing. What I said, but Everything that happens in the in the barn, the trial barn, can't necessarily happen regularly o- across the whole system, uh, and and we have to be flexible on that stuff. Uh, we owe that to the toll mill. We owe that to the site guys and and to the animal. You know, animal welfare has got to be right up there on top of the list of of things we got to be thinking about. Yeah, you're exactly right. I've had those phone calls and the producer out there in that zero degree weather rotting feet out of the bin and it, it's something we did in the feed mill. It is not that producer's fault that it ended up that way. And it's, yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly right. Having to go back to the nutritionist then at that point and, and 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 discuss the the capabilities of the feed mill because you you're exactly right on how you described it. We freeze dry the pellets because I mean you're pulling so many CFMs through, running forty plus ton an hour. We just we can't when you're pulling that cold of air through. You can't adequately cool and dry that pellet. I, I mean I'm not a physicist, but I'm not sure you can physically do it the way feed mills are are designed. So yeah, we plus or minus 10 degrees of ambience, kind of our goal. Um, it, it comes out, yeah, I mean, you can tell by touching it, it's, it's frozen. 
and then we're trying to, and then we got the wild idea on these downstream fat coders. Let's run it through a heat exchanger then and get it hotter before we put it on the pellets. And, you know, it makes sense. I mean, if you're, it does. If you have a properly cooled and dried pellet and you hit it with, with hotter fat, it's naturally going to want to soak in to that pellet. But I think we shoot ourselves in the foot doing that when we're sending up a pellet that's frozen and squirting the hot fat on it. Yeah, it'll thaw the outside a little bit, but but you're right. As it sets in a bin and that heat uh, moves through that through that pellet and through the bin and the fat melts, it's it's a mess. And it's so have you over the years had toll mills come back to you and say, you know, Bob, I when it gets below 10 degrees, whatever the number is, uh, I cannot put that amount of fat on the pellet. Um, then, I mean, how, how, do, how do the mash-offs and, and Omar and others um, adjust, adjust for that? Because it's a one-off. It would be different formulations than you want to run, different uh, formula specifications that um, would need to be used just under certain temperature conditions. So it might be used today, but it warms up tomorrow, so you don't need to use it. How, how do you balance that without uh, having nutritionists uh, upset for having to, to make so many different diets? Well, and I, I think that leads to another statement I'd like to make, and that is that it, another thing that's changed in the feed industry is you have to have nutritionists and R&D people who are willing to listen to people with a less that have less of an education than they do because, and Omar's very, I give kudos to Omar, but you know, this, this guy that's laying out there on the ground with the rod at night when it's 20 below probably doesn't have a PhD in most situations, but he knows that what we're doing ain't working. And I'm very fortunate to work with Omar and a team and, and the Mashoff brothers themselves, you know, Dave still works in a feed mill occasionally if he gets an opportunity to, I work for a company who really puts animal welfare first. And so as soon as we have things that are, that are going to probably disrupt the delivery of feed to that animal, they're, they're pretty quick to say, okay, you know, we'll cut the fat in half or we'll, or we'll stop putting fat on. And now that doesn't mean they don't call every day and ask, can we put it back on? But they're, they're pretty quick to adjust. And we've got good, uh, We've got good partners. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to throw out a bunch of names there, but, you know, when we worked with you folks, uh, you know, you understood what it was going to take to get the job done. And when I'd get a call from you or some of the other guys and they just say, hey, we can't do this anymore. I like the first time I hear them say that, I like to try to go back and do something. I don't like to get to the point where they just call and say, hey, next week you need to find somebody else to make your feed because we're not going to do, you know, because if it's hung up in the bin, who's the first person we call? the feed mill. Hey, can you get somebody out there and help us reclaim that? You know, so that's, that's cost to you and, and to the feed mill. Yeah, they can charge it to me, but then they've got their people out there trying to do it. And it, it just doesn't work for anybody. 
And I like to think we we try to be as flexible as anyone. Again, getting back to that capability thing. And if if it's something we're asking for something that just can't be done. I don't mind asking for extra effort, but, you know, I don't want anybody to be going crazy out there just trying to do something that isn't going to work. So we would cut the fat back. Um, and a lot of times if we're honest about some of this stuff, you know, it's it's the it's the most efficient way to raise pigs. It's the most efficient way, perhaps in, in the case of fat, to get the energy level that you want. But, you know, it might not be the only way. And, and it might be, you know, it might be that if we – if we would, let's say we'd have a feed interruption for two or three days, you know, twice during that pig growing up, uh, how, how much did that set him back? What that cost us? And these guys will look at that kind of stuff and realize, Hey, the best thing to do is keep something in front of the pig. You know, that's first and foremost. So I think we do okay. Um, but it's still more work to feed pellets. There's no way, there's no really way to make it look like it's, the easiest way to feed pigs because I I don't think it is. Yeah, and I don't uh, I, I totally agree with you. I don't want anybody to take any comment I've made as uh, you know as to slamming nutritionists or anything because I agree. Omar has he's great to work with from a from a toll mill side as well as the. Uh, the, the the period of time I worked directly with him at the mash offs and 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 really most uh, most nutritionists are fall into that same boat. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's all about it's all about the pig. It really doesn't no, nothing else really matters. So uh, the working with the mills and what their capabilities are and how to um, you know how do we get get the best nutrition to that pig possible given the 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 parameters uh, and constraints we have to work within so uh, i think that's uh, have a lot of respect for uh, for nutritionists uh yeah i'm myself and not a phd i'm just a dumb feet guy so uh if they're willing to listen to us then uh and make adjustments that's that's really about all we could ask yeah, agreed. And I, I don't mean to make them out like bad guys. Uh, I'm just saying when I first started out, it, we didn't have those kind of relationships. I mean, most of the time we didn't even know who the nutritionists were, right? And agreed. The guy would call and say, hey, here's what I want. Make it. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's a good thing. Yep. That's, that's another area of the feed industry that has evolved over time. And and, and and in a good way, uh, in, in my opinion. I agree, 100%. It's time for our famous three. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonics focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. Well, Bob, I've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, we probably should uh, start to wrap it up. And there, there's, there's three questions I'd like to, to ask uh, as we 
as we end this podcast. Uh, the first one, um, what is a, uh, you know, a resource, kind of a go-to resource for you uh, over your career that uh, uh, just helped you with, with regards to, to feed manufacturing or the feed industry? Well, I'll tell you that's that's changed too. Um, I I started out, you know, using books, uh, uh, universities, that type of thing for some problems. But but as 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 it's changed, and especially with working at the mash shops, a lot of times we're kind of on the on the front edge of some of these things, right? So what I've done in my life that's helped me immensely is I I get a network of people. Almost anything that that you want to talk about or work about, if I don't have an idea where to start, if it's a if it's an air question, I got a guy from Iowa that knows just about as much about air and CFM and all that stuff as anybody going, and and I'll I'll reach out to him. Uh, some of the people that make equipment uh, have done a lot of testing and that kind of stuff, and. and when I saw when I started wanting to grind fine, I reached out to some of them and I said, you know, how are these ethanol guys doing all this grinding? What how are they getting that done? Uh, and I find you get you get the right answer quicker if you'll find people such as yourself. Uh, you've done a lot of pelting. You can tell people a lot of you know. You can be in this seat pretty easy about pelting. Um, so I've switched more from books to just a network of people that are actually doing these things, and it's it's really easier to do that now because there's fewer and fewer of those people all the time, right? Uh, we're not growing, we're not growing uh, as many farm boys as we used to grow. And we're not growing as many female guys as we used to grow. And uh, there's a limited number of people that really understand pelting or really understand grinding or, or really understanding any of this stuff. And, and so people are my biggest resource when I have a problem. Good. Um, is, is there a, 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 a resource or, or something that, uh, you know, maybe outside of, uh, feed milling or agriculture that, uh, uh, has helped drive you or, or provide information throughout your career? Well, boy, there's, there's, there's no replacement for experience. You know, I think, I think, uh, if, if a guy wants to kind of champion change and, and and try not to just think about what we've always done before. Um, and and I think I think from a relationship standpoint too, it's key that that we learn a lot about ourselves. Um, you know, if you when you think about crucial conversations and that kind of stuff, and and become self aware about what our weaknesses are and what our strengths are, um, and then be confident be confident in what you know and and admit what you don't, um, you know, you'll, you'll get along a lot quicker than if you just try to bully your way through everything. So, so personally, I think self-awareness, you know, I think the crucial conversation type of, of books, uh, I, there's a lot in the Bible, Ron, it'll help you a lot just to figure out what kind of person you should be and treat people fairly and, and do what you tell them to do. And, and I think in corporate America, the other thing is we need to understand what we control, right? And so I always limit my promises to people to things that are in my control. And so I'm not out there making promises that I that I can't keep. I think that's 
really a bad start to a relationship. So if you want me to do something and I can't promise you, that's what I'll tell you. I I'll do what I can, but I can't promise you. So from a personal standpoint, those are, those are some of the things that I've learned in the last 64 years. Well, you've, you've, you've already kind of answered the last question I was going to ask, but are certainly parts of what you said, uh, uh, would, uh, would contribute to this, but, what in your mind separates uh, people who who have been successful in the feed industry and those who may have been less successful? Yeah, I I think agri- agricultural people are are born; they're not made. Uh, I was fortunate to to have a grandfather who had a farm, and and I had a sincere interest in agriculture to begin with. Uh, so. I think that's a big plus. I think agriculture teaches us all a good hard work ethic. And, you know, okay. I, I always like to think, I always tell people I got a, I think I have a, like about a C plus mind, right? I, I just think I'm smarter than about half the people I meet. Uh, <laughs> but I realize that there's a lot of A plus minds and those kind of people out there. So I just made up my mind a long time ago that I might not be as smart as everybody, but I'll outwork anybody. And so, you know, have confidence in yourself. Don't be afraid to work. I think the people who don't make it in agriculture are the people who don't understand it. When pigs are out of feed at three o'clock in the morning, somebody's got to do something about it. You can't wait till after you, you go to Starbucks and get in the office to deal with it. And if you don't like that kind of stuff, you better stay out of agriculture because I don't know of any agriculture jobs where you're not pretty much on call 24 seven. Uh, and I think that's why a lot of people leave it is it's it's a lot of work. So that's yeah, that's it. In the yeah, you have to. If you don't, you're not going to stay in it, especially when it's 20 below. <laughs> <laughs> and well, great, Bob. I appreciate your time. Appreciate your insight. That uh, I think we'll we'll wrap this up for today. So this is been uh, the Feed Science Podcast. Uh, Thank you for listening. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time-consuming and requires technical know-how. But don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.